Welcome to Taxpayer Talk. Today I am joined by Robert McCulloch, a professor of macroeconomics at the University of Auckland. You might remember Rob from a previous episode in which he explained the rise of Aotearnomics, the fluffy new well-being approach to policy making in New Zealand. Now Robert has written a piece for the National Business Review with a fairly extraordinary headline, Wellington hates economists, free enterprise will suffer. So here's a short quote from Robert about economics in Wellington. He says, Because the profession is not characterised by knee-jerk big government types, its members have become ideologically unacceptable to Kiwi politicians and bureaucrats who thrive on red tape, centralisation, money printing, higher taxes and less competition in the welfare state. Economists with off-script views about how better social outcomes can be achieved with little intervention or by using approaches with market-based characteristics are simply not wanted close to our government. So, Robert, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you give us an example of something that you've seen in the media or within the Reserve Bank or Treasury that's prompted this damning assessment from you towards the government? Well, yes. Uh, matters have been brought to a head somewhat by a recent ad by the Treasury uh, which wanted to hire a, a senior analyst to uh, be able to give uh, advice at the cutting edge of, of economics uh, using sort of the latest uh, knowledge in the subject. And that person uh, who they wanted to operate at the forefront of the subject, uh, it was stated in the ad that an economics background was, was not essential. And so, this was a senior analyst for economic strategy. Yeah, so you don't need to have done uh, any economics, it, it seems, uh, to uh, apply for, for that job. Um, another example is how uh, economists who are actively researching uh, monetary issues related to monetary policy um, have been ruled out of consideration on the Reserve Bank's uh, monetary uh, policy committee. But I, I want to say something about this that's quite important. Um, this isn't a one-off thing uh, on your question of examples. It's not just the Reserve Bank example, the Treasury example. This goes back a long time. And the background also is private discussions, emails, including when I wrote these articles, from some uh, of the biggest names and best known people uh, in economics, but also that some of the most senior people in Wellington who've privately mailed me saying, we all know this to be true. And those people don't want their names in the media, but uh, some of them are very prominent. And so this isn't coming from me. I'm just the one doing the article. I'm the front guy. Maybe it's easier for me because I work at a university and you apply this sort of critic and conscience of society thing. But for those who maybe are a bit nervous about speaking out, um, have reasons to, uh, they're quietly there in the background. So there's a lot more behind this article, by the way, than mm -hmm. may appear. So are you suggesting this is an institutional issue, that it's come from deep within the public sector rather than top down from the beehive? I think it's, I think it's both. Uh, I think it is. It has become institutionalised um, throughout uh, uh, the, the bureaucracy. 
but it's undoubtedly also is, is being driven by, by certain politicians. I mean, for example, uh, the finance minister, Grant Robertson, was involved in the exclusion. He was directly involved in the exclusion of, uh, on the Monetary Policy Committee of having folks who are actively researching and actually know a few things about, about that kind of issue. So he was, you know, that can be directly traced to him. Of course, with the Treasury ad, we don't know, you know, that might, could well have not had political influence, but it came from within the institution of the yes. New Zealand Treasury. And for the benefit of our listeners, the Monetary Policy Committee, they essentially set the interest rates, don't they? Yes, that's right. So arguably there is no, no single institution that has had more influence on our macroeconomic conditions over the last year or so than the Monetary Policy Committee. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the question is why, why don't they want people who actually know a thing or two about monetary policy uh, on that committee in the sense that they're actively researching the topic? Um, my uh, opinion, that was an opinion piece in the NBR, is that the government wants everyone to stick to the narrative. They have a, a, a very uh, heavy interest in, in what they refer to as shaping the narrative. Uh, they don't want dissenting voices. I don't believe when it comes to economics, diversity of opinion, diversity of value, diversity of belief uh, is championed. I don't think that there is an inclusionary approach when it comes to a diff diverse economic beliefs, they want people all singing from the same sheet because mm. it's, it's important for the institutions, the people running them, uh, and the politicians. They don't want dissenting uh, of, of voices. So imagine if you applied for the Reserve Bank now and you, know, you, you didn't believe in global warming, or even if you did, you didn't think there should be command and control regulations to deal with it. Well, I, you know, it, it, it seems unlikely if that came up in your interview and you expressed taxpayer union type views on that matter, uh, I wouldn't expect you'd get the job. And you're applying for a job at the Reserve Bank, but yeah. obviously the environment is a big issue there. And if you are ideologically opposed to uh, what the bank's doing on this, uh, undoubtedly it's going to affect your, your success. This is really disturbing, especially in the case of the Reserve Bank, because independence is, independence is meant to be such a hallmark of that institution. And I'm thinking, for example, of the $100 billion money printing program. From a taxpayers' union perspective, we've sometimes struggled how to challenge those kinds of moves because it's not the government that has implemented the money printing, it's the independent reserve bank. Are you suggesting that moves like the quantitative easing and the money printing actually do fit in to a broader government strategy? Well, yes, in the sense that um, going back to the exclusion of people actively researching um, monetary policy issues, uh, you know, how, how, how have they got away with that program? Why isn't it not more in the media that uh, a major part of the reason why property prices have gone through the roof and potentially um, spilled over into the generalised high inflation rates? Now, to the extent that's happening, identifying those sorts of causal mechanisms is, is not straightforward in economics. It's not a matter of just a politician or the prime minister saying it's got nothing to do with that, it's all because of Ukraine. 
that that uh, in fact is a difficult problem. You need a lot of statistics, techie econometrics. Uh, you have to bring a lot of data to that issue. The Reserve Bank itself is not researching that question. In mm-hmm. fact, the Reserve Bank is trying to wipe it from uh, explaining the causes of inflation. It's as if it never happened. It's as if there's not a link between money printing and high inflation. And the government doesn't want to make that link. They want to blame inflation on overseas factors. The Reserve Bank doesn't. Well, you know, that it's not for the Reserve Bank to be trying to politicise the causes of high inflation in the country. We want objective, uh, uh, fact-based evidence brought to, to that question. So what, why is the government so keen to champion evidence-based uh, health advice uh, from various uh, academics uh, who are actively researching uh, viruses, saying this is extremely important to have the likes of Professor Michael Baker involved. But when it comes to economics, uh, there's a whole bunch of equivalents to Professor Michael Baker who, if they don't like their views, they don't want them anywhere near the table. Yeah, listen to the experts we've been told for two years. Yes. So, so the finance minister, he doesn't necessarily influence individual decisions decisions made by the Reserve Bank or um, he does not dictate the kind of analysis that they do, but he does appear to dictate the people making the decisions and dictate who is who is chosen to undertake the analysis. Yes. Well, he has influenced the composition of the Monetary Policy Committee um, very, very greatly. Mm. Um, so in that sense, uh, yes, he, he does have enormous influence over those decisions, and that's how uh, central banks can be <clears throat> um, politicised. Um, famously in the United States when uh, Alan Greenspan, I think there's a famous example when Alan Greenspan was chairman of the US Fed. He was originally appointed, I think, by Ronald Reagan, but he was reappointed by Bill Clinton. So, you know, there was a bipartisan consensus there that uh, they, they, they were happy with him at the time. Now, in this country, you're seeing clearly partisan appointments um, to yeah. senior jobs, and particularly to the Monetary Policy Committee. If you look at the background of those of the people on that committee, so that that brings me to my next question, which is: if they're not hiring economists or economists with orthodox economics backgrounds, what kind of candidates are they looking for? I mean, they talk about well-rounded candidates and candidates uh, with diverse perspectives. What does that all actually mean? Well, I, I take those words to mean they'll hire who they want to. Um, yeah, because it's so know, vague. It they're so vague that you can just hire whoever whoever you want to. You know, it's it means that someone walks into the interview and they might have uh, an inc- you know, incredibly high-level qualification uh, in the subject. <clears throat> they may be an, an amazing economist, but they can effectively turn around and say we don't like the way you walk, so we're not we're not employing you. It's taking away a lot of the objective criteria. Yeah, yeah. And as for why this matters, uh, you recently, I think, you recently published a blog post on the standard of living in New Zealand, which is surely um, has, to, has to be the headline economic issue and should be constantly monitored. Uh, you have argued that Kiwis are facing the biggest drop in living standards since the 1970s. Can you walk us through how you've arrived at that view? 
Yes, well, I asked the question, um, is it true that we're experiencing the greatest decline in our standard of living since the 70s? And then I put in brackets, can the Treasury please confirm? Well, you know, you'd think this would be the most important issue in, in the country. What I can't make sense of is that the Prime Minister and Finance Minister have said, look, um, the cost of living rises in this country um, and, and not due to any sort of mess-ups of domestic policy. Um, they formally uh, rejected the idea that it's due to high government spending and big deficits. No, according to the, the, the government, and Robertson and Adun have formally stated in Parliament, uh, it's due to factors beyond their control. It's due to coronavirus, which is hitting the world everywhere, global supply chain disruptions, the war in Ukraine. Okay, so let's take them at their word. Well, then a lot of countries are experiencing, you know, these the same problems, as they have stated, and for us it's exactly the same. Well, the headlines on the front page of the, the Times in Britain are... Due to these kinds of disruptions, Britain is experiencing the biggest drop in real disposable incomes since the 1950s, uh, since records began. Now, our inflation rate's pretty similar to the United Kingdom's, and it's probably going to go higher. In fact, we've had way larger increases in house prices than the British have had the last uh, three years. Ours have gone up about 50%. So... You know, you and now the, the folks who came up with this uh, forecast in Britain is an independent government office that was set up to not have a political bias, and it releases these official these these forecasts, so it's somewhat immune from political pressure. And they've come up with these uh, calculations that the standard uh, the drop in the standard of living is as big as it was since since the nineteen fifties. Now, how come the Treasury here, how come our institutions have not given us a detailed time series of real disposable incomes in New Zealand? And when did they last drop by, you know, of the order of three or four percent, which real disposable incomes seem to be going down now? I I can't get the information from the Treasury. I want to know right now, is it true that we're experiencing a drop in our standard of living uh, at least as big as happened back, say, in around 1973 or four. Why, why yes. don't we? Why don't? Why aren't those numbers in the public domain? Because right now we're um, we're left to look at CPI, uh, which mm. is heading towards seven percent, but that it, that excludes property prices, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So for many Kiwis as well who've bought properties at these huge prices and have a big mortgage, and their mortgage uh, interest rates are shooting upwards as well, uh, it would seem that there's no reason to think that the average Kiwi is in any better shape than the average uh, British. So, you know, where where are these data? In fact, many media outlets, uh, for example, in the Herald, uh, their economics correspondent, is, is sort of largely saying the economy is doing great. Well, well, just just hang on a second. Um, the, the, the headlines are exactly the opposite uh, in, yep. in in the United Kingdom. Everyone's so, getting poorer, and the economy's doing great. That's the yeah. absurd world we live in. 
Thank you, Robert, so much for joining us. I'm going to give a plug to your blog, mm-hmm. uh, which can be found at www.downtoearth.kiwi. Yeah. I see you've got the piece on the standard of living, as well as a copy of your National Business Review article. Yeah. As for Taxpayer Talk, all our episodes can be found at taxpayers.org.nz slash podcast or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, you get the picture. The Taxpayer Talk podcast is made possible by the thousands of New Zealanders who financially support the Taxpayers Union. Thank you. Thanks, Louis.